0: Round Rant and my guest today is Dave Dillon. Dave is currently head coach of Japanese side Cabelco Steelers, a side with players such as Adam Ashley Cooper and Dan Carter on their roster. Dave also spent time with the Chiefs while also coaching for a period in Ireland. So, Dave, thanks a million for coming on the show today, and how are things with you today?
1: Yeah, not too bad. So, um, yeah, thanks for the introduction there. No, worries. Um, no, we're good. So, just like you said, um, just at Kabalko Steelers here, half an hour south of um, Osaka, down the bottom of the main island of Japan. Um, Obviously via New Zealand and Ireland and back to New Zealand and then Japan, so that's a landscape of rugby, I guess. So, um, no, it's a good part of the world and, uh, yeah, enjoying living here. Mm. So tell
0: me a bit about um, when you grew up, your childhood. So you were born in New Zealand, so I'm curious to know what was it like growing up um, in that
1: spot? Yeah, so I um, grew up in a little farming community about an hour and hour and a half on a on a good day um, southeast of Auckland, mm-hmm. so on the North Island there. Um, so, come off a dairy farm, so cows, and then moved into town, as I said, which was Town was five hundred people, so we had a couple of shops, yeah. and a couple of schools in that, and a petrol station. Um, but yeah, good, good childhood. Uh, my father was a farmer, then a butcher, um, so plenty of, um, plenty of it revolved around um, the land. Um, and uh, yeah, just a good country lifestyle, actually, to be fair. So, um, and obviously, New Zealand with. Sport and rugby being the number one sport, just, um, you know, early memories of playing footy and bare feet on a frosty morning and then um, looking forward to a pie and a fizzy afterwards.
0: <laughs> and um, you touched on it there, how big How big was rugby during that period? Because obviously now New Zealand, the All Blacks, it's it's a global thing, especially in the world of professionalism with rugby. But I'm just wondering back 20, 30 years ago, how important or big was the sport? before it went professional?
1: Um, yeah, good question. So my early memories, my grandfather and father were life members of our local club, so I was, I was born and raised in Ngātia. Um So back then the senior club side had um, a first division, so a premier side, a second division, so first, seconds and thirds and a 21s team. Um so there's lots of people playing playing rugby um, at grassroots level, as we call it, in New Zealand. In more recent times, it's been um, dramatic changes, I guess, with the way society is, um, pressures on families and mm-hmm. and um, different, I guess, focuses of young, people, young men these days. And um, so that club side that I grew up with has only got the one team now. Um, and that's that's quite uh, consistent across a lot of the provinces. Obviously, it's only a little province, but um, the, num- the numbers uh, have, have decreased yeah. considerably. And I'm just curious to know, what,
0: like, what got you, did you start off as a player at a young age? Did you go straight into coaching? How did uh, the game of rugby become part of your life?
1: I guess learn behaviour. Yeah. Um, as I just mentioned before, um, grandfather and father both lived members of the local rugby club, and as you alluded to back in those times, it was um, every, every every young man played it, and it was just, I guess, part of part of life and part part of my life growing up, having seen my father play and coach, and then um, I guess just following and developing a passion through being around him and. And it' been around the family and the community, and obviously, as you alluded to, it's uh, it is still New Zealand's number one sport. So um, I'm not saying there's not not young people with that dream. I'm just saying when it gets to the club level now, the numbers have definitely um, decreased.
0: And how far did you go as a player? Because obviously now you're you're coaching, but did you get to a high enough level? Did you just play? With your local club, how how far up the ladder did you get as a player?
1: Um, so I played um provincial age group and then provincial rugby. So the modern Ten Cup that's on at the moment, and was in and around um super sides and then um like preseason squads and and whatnot. And then you know you get to an age where you make a decision whether you, you stay in New Zealand or. You use um you know the foundation that you've got and get overseas and that's um how I ended up over in Ireland, mm. I guess, and
0: what led you what was the decision that made you head over to Ireland because you spent several years coaching there and you even coached at St Michael's the school I went to, and that has produced so many players currently um like how important was that period for you heading over to Ireland and experiencing new ways of playing new ways of coaching and even as you probably met yourself, a, a new way of life
1: oh, it was huge for me um, so I'd done a I'd done a degree at university while I was playing for Bay Plenty and then um, Waikato over those years so I, I had a university degree before I went away which um, basically was a good foundation and was probably the catalyst to get me in, into st. Michael's um, I'll come back to that in a minute but I, I guess um, a good friend of mine, Benny Willis, Ben Willis, who played for Leinster and played for Island A, um, and went on to play for Harlequins and that. We played at a club together and at Waikato together, and um, he was basically the one who, um, I guess, created the opportunity um, for me to go to Blackrock College Rugby Club, which was which is a great club and a lot of good people um, there, and then from there. Um, the great Noel Turley, um I've heard Greg McWilliams talk about um before on his, his podcast that he did a while back. Um I didn't know Noel, Noel very uh very long, obviously, but at the time that I um, was able to know Noel and his wife Catherine, pretty fortunate he's uh everything Greg had alluded mm-hmm. to he's just a good man and he yeah. was a connection in with Michaels. And
0: in relation to Michael's, what did you learn there? Because obviously now it's a it's a big name in the European stakes because it's produced so many of the Leinster and even the Irish uh, players at the minute. And I'm just wondering what were your experience there? Was it how, what was the differences between maybe what you learned from from in school in New Zealand to what you got to witness as a coach in Ireland?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, it's just a good school. Um... You know, there's a lot of people there that were very good to me and my family, Tim Callaha, Callaha um, Gary Coakley, and the, the list goes on. I, I think for any school and um, subsequently when I got home from, from Ireland, I, mm. um, I actually went into school teaching in a pretty similar school in Auckland called Sacred Heart College. And looking back at Michael's, I think good leadership is really important, and I think in that school – the people that have been in those positions, I alluded to Greg, um, Gary Coakley, Gavin Nags. um, (laughs) I'm getting a bit old, I forget names, but there's a lot of good people there and um, right people in the right places uh, all working towards an outcome. And I guess that was... What I learned at Michael's was it was in its infant stages. I was there when the academies were starting to be put in. Was lucky to be part of that. Um, and I think the other thing too is the amount of, of old boys mm-hmm. that are willing to give back, like Andy Skeen. You no, know, he's done very well with his coaching. Sean Skeen, and then um, you know, heard Peter Burke talking really fondly around um, his time at Michael's when he left and was unsure what he was going to do and how he went back and coached. And I guess just the environment, right people in the right places and everyone working towards uh, the greater good, I guess.
0: Mm, no, that's that's well said. And you, you mentioned there you went back to New Zealand and you were a teacher and you also coached. And it's, I'm just curious, and I, I had this discussion with Greg when he was on, I'm just wondering, like, why do you think teaching goes hand in hand with coaching? as several high-profile international coaches all taught in a school at some stage. And do you think there's certain abilities you gain from having to control a classroom or even control a PE class um, that can cross over into rugby coaching?
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, well, it's pretty obvious in terms of when you look around the world with the quality coaches that are in the positions that they are and A lot of them are teaching backgrounds, um, I think teaching is all about relationships, um, finding out how people learn um, and getting getting in, in. Um, I think that's really important I've learned that through through teaching, obviously planning's a pretty integral part of teaching as well um, and you, you know effectively you um, at any given time you've got five or six classes that you look after and you see them a couple of times a week and there's Thirty, sometimes thirty-five people, students in those classes. So it's trying to trying to form those relationships, work out how you can different ways you can get your knowledge across, and basically get an outcome. I guess. And when you look at a at a team and and um, the demands and, and that of a team and what you're trying to do and you're, and your coaching, that it really coaching is teaching to me.
0: Mm and on that point you're talking about different different environments and as you said coaching is essentially teaching i'm curious to know you're obviously working now in japan and you've spent time in new zealand also spent time in ireland and say for instance the japanese from what i've read and seen in interviews especially with some of the interviews with eddie jones when he spent time there with the national team he was saying they were nearly too obedient and they they were too nice almost and then I'm sure you had different personalities and different cultures in New Zealand and Ireland. I'm just wondering, like, what are some of the main things you've had to adjust from your own personal coaching methods as you've moved to and from different cultures and different uh, countries?
1: I think, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, you're relating to people, so that's – that's the first thing, so whether it be Japan, Ireland or um, New Zealand, you're dealing with people and in what we're talking about, you're dealing with rugby players. But, I mean, Eddie Eddie Jones had valid points there. I mean, um, a lot of that comes through for the way. The first thing I did before I come over here a couple of years ago was just to look at um, their education system, Um, Mm. look at the mainstream education system and look at how they learn and, what what they're exposed to and then look at the high school and the university rugby as well so I guess there's a a massive culture of respect here there's so many good things here with the way the culture is it reminds me of New Zealand where I grew up you know 30, 35 years ago as a kid where kids could be kids they had quite a bit of autonomy and um, it's just so safe and people are so respectful over here coming to the question in terms of And around their learning and that, I guess it's just trying to uh, get them to think about the game a little bit more rather than uh, be told. Uh, Hmm. I think that's a challenge over here, and I think that comes from that does come from their the education system Um, heavily driven process. I mean, outcome based. Um, So it's been great. It's been exciting. I mean. for me, I know whether whether I end up uh, wherever I end up. Sorry, um, whether it be back in New Zealand or back over Island Way or in around that way, I'm going to be a much better coach for for being here. Mm. Okay,
0: so to kind of take a step or two back after your time is spent as a teacher, you went on and did a bit of coaching with Bay of Plenty while you also led. Um, you eventually ended up doing some work with the Chiefs and I'm just curious to know what, what was it like working with a club such as the Chiefs and and what exactly did your job consist of during your time there?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm born and bred in the Chiefs region, so um, as I alluded to at the start, um, Nadia lies within Thames Valley, which is one of the provinces that makes up the Chiefs. Um, yeah, so I was in Auckland and got asked to come down and it was a, a new role. It was um, pretty much created by Chris Tindall, who had come to the Chiefs from New Zealand. who's was doing all the contracting at New Zealand for 10 years and, was, was as a, and still is a world leader in that space. And then Andrew Strawbridge, Tom Coventry and Dave Reddy and Wayne Smith were the coaches. And I had a pretty good handle across pretty much every schoolboy player playing the game to first 15 level in New Zealand Um, and that was through coaching in Auckland at first 15 level but also coaching um, the New Zealand Barbarians which is New Zealand school's second side so I went down to the Chiefs and my role there was I ran all their development so I ran their their A side which is their second side, I ran their 20s, their 18s and their 17s Um, and my role was player development talent ID so I was pretty much looking at the succession plan from the Chiefs as to, you know, projecting in three or four years' time where they were going to be deficient. Obviously, the immediate future as well, like the next year, but more so forward thinking, forward planning. Pretty much um, looking at, when you're talking about where you are, looking at where Leinster are at now with the players that they've got coming through, and particularly a lot of them from St. Michael's, which is great to mm-hmm. see the flaming sword represented. <laughs> but... Um, I was doing that at the Chiefs, so uh, a lot of the players that are playing there now are guys that I've had quite a bit to do with, with A, as I said, back, with the teaching, the relationship, and knowing their families and knowing their backgrounds. Um, Chiefs are pretty, uh, well, one of the major things that they recruit on is character and competitiveness, so Um, I never put anyone forward that that didn't have that and um, yeah so that was my role, I was lucky enough to be there for, I was lucky enough to be involved there four years in total and um, you know you learn through old Moses, it was a new role so that was really exciting, Um, I guess you get to pave your own way and I just watched them tonight, they beat the Hurricanes tonight and to see some of those guys perform there, it's quite satisfying to see those guys and know that you've known them for a long time and You've been a small part of of where they've got to, you yeah. know.
0: And just on that on that role there, and you name dropped Lencer there, and they seem to be really setting setting the standard when it comes to academy rugby and making sure the process from schools to sub academy into professional rugby. It's it seems seamless now, and I'm just wondering when you took over the role was there. Any issues or was there one or two things that you identified that needed improvement? Was it, say, the coaching at schools level? Was it the transition? Was it some of the S&C work, the coaching? was Basically, was there any issues or glaring issues um, that you saw from the move from school to hopefully professional rugby player?
1: I think the biggest thing is when people come – they come to an organisation like the Chiefs because the Chiefs have, and, you know, Dave, Ian Foster was there and then Dave Rooney, they have a strong identity with the region um, with moldydom, so with the Māori culture and it's massive and it plays a really big part there. But more importantly, it's an environment of support. So, you know, when these guys, particularly if they're moving from Outside the area, down um, to be, be potential chiefs or sign full contracts with the chiefs. I guess the biggest element, and being a parent myself, is the support. Um, so, it's putting support mechanisms in place. I guess at school, when you're at school and you know yourself, you're um, you're sort of right a wave, and um, you've got your training three or four times a week, and you've got your schoolwork, and then you return home to. Mum and dad, or, or whatever your home situation is, and your meals there, and it's quite a safe, um, comfortable environment. Um, so that transition from first fifteen, moving through to provincial and professional player, particularly for the boys that are moving, for me, a big part of my role and something that I think that I like to think from the teaching background and how I was raised is is that holistic support. So, you know, if you sit in some in front of someone and you say to the parents, we will look after him, uh, to me that's like, that's your word and you've got to deliver and that's something, you know, the Chiefs have got a lady called um, Lynn, Lynn, uh, Lynn, that's her, Lynn Sanson, who runs a house and the boys live with her and then there's another few families that take people in and just good people wherever you, wherever you look and, um, you know, um, that's really important when you're when you're recruiting players that you're supporting them. And it's not when it's if uh, sorry it's not if it's when in terms of you know they got to have issues and there's got to be little things that um, pipe up in that. But it's making sure they got the support to get through that and um, and they feel like they belong, I guess. And then you get the best out of them and and you involve the family in terms of. Um, watching games and coming down and meeting other families and it, it basically does become a you know the the Chiefs' money or Chiefs' culture. So I really enjoyed that, and that, that's not a challenge, but I guess that's what needs to be done to be successful in that space.
0: And would that be quite similar to the other places, the other well, the other clubs and provinces across the New Zealand? As in, everyone always has their ideas. I'm speaking of Irish people, English people, people from European rugby nations, and they always wonder what is the the common characteristic in New Zealand that makes them so good. Because if you look over the last 20 years, they've been the dominant force and they've set standards on and off the pitch. And I'm just wondering, having been born there, having lived there for so long and worked with different clubs and different provinces and worked with so many different players and coaches... Is there a certain characteristic you think New Zealand have that certainly helps them on the rugby pitch or is it very much it's different wherever you go?
1: I think first things first, it's our number one sport. So um, that's that's a pretty big thing in terms of young players coming through in New Zealand. I think um, first of thing, rugby's massive now. Um, it's televised. There's a game or two games a week. Um I think uh, the the New Zealand kids play a lot of sport, a lot of different sports. So, you know, in my role with player development talent, I need to sit down with someone and hear that they're from a basketball, um, hockey, rugby background, or they played football till they were 13, plus did swimming, and um, that's really exciting. And then the other, um, I guess, Element that you chuck into it is, you know, coaching is probably the biggest thing in player development. So the, the, the programs that are run for first 15 coaches in their provinces and through New Zealand Rugby Union and the franchises in New Zealand Rugby Union are like they get up towards that player engagement, towards game related activities, you know, the importance of relationships all that sort of stuff, so I think it's a a combination probably of those two or three things in New Zealand.
0: Yeah, well I suppose we'll think that's probably overlooked and especially maybe in European countries, the big nations is, the fact it is the number one sport because obviously I'm sure you know with Ireland you've got the Gaelic games and you've got certain counties do not even know what a rugby ball looks like, they're so they're so deeply uh, into their Gaelic football or their hurling and then I suppose with England they're mad into so many different sports so that is probably something that probably is uh, overlooked probably from a player point of view but then also a media point of view so yeah, know it is interesting that you bring it up that everything is geared towards being a rugby player from a sporting perspective in New Zealand Um, so to push on from your Chiefs experience you end up and it was only a few years ago you end up moving to Japan to coach and I'm just curious to know what happened there? How did that move come about? Was did somebody simply give you a call? Was it someone within the Chiefs? How did, how did the move come about?
1: Um, I was fortunate enough um, for a guy, um, a good coach called Peter Russell. So Peter Russell was instrumental in turning Hawke's Bay around with Tom Coventry back in the early 2000s. Um, and then he was involved in the Highlanders for a couple of years and, and then... Ended up in Europe at Newcastle, where Newcastle were pretty successful as well. So I'd done my um, IRB. I talked to b- before about coaching certificates. So I'd done my IRB level four through New Zealand, and um, Pete was Pete was on um, on that. Um, as were a lot of other coaches that are pretty prominent in world rugby today. And um, so he got the opportunity to go across there and. I guess to get better at something, I mean, I really enjoyed my role at the Chiefs and I was passionate about that and I loved um, having represented Bayer Plenty, being back there coaching at Mitre 10 and cut, Cup, but um, I sort of saw it as an as experience for myself to do something full-time, um, get out of my comfort zone, experience a different culture, but also from a family point of view, to give my, my wife and my children just, you know, a different experience and Speaking of other people that have played over here and a couple of other people that have coached and what I alluded to before around how co- the culture and society is here and, yeah, just decided that that, um, that would be beneficial to me and also hugely beneficial to my family.
0: And you, you spoke about a there, different experience, different culture and rugby aside, what was the biggest culture change or culture shock that you encountered when you moved from New Zealand to Japan
1: I think um, probably the biggest shock for me is you've probably heard the New Zealand attitude of um, she'll be right and no worries and sort of can do was just getting settled I guess I was over initially by myself and um, there's a lot of paperwork over here to get a lot of things that are quite simple back home um, and quite untime-consuming, it's sort of probably the direct opposite here. So everything's got to be correct and filled in the right area and um, outcome focus, as I talked about before, When you're alluding to some of the questions here around um, the schooling and that here. So that was probably the biggest culture shock for me was just how long things that I took for granted back home that were... Quite a process here, and probably the second thing was um, the second thing that hit me was, it was definitely was just how respectful people were to each other and how the society ran, and particularly for the elderly. Um, not going into too much, but I got crooked my first couple of weeks here, and mm. the medical care over here and the insurance that's provided for everyone. Um, that lives here uh, is just next level, like unbelievable. Um, so yeah, it was nothing really to do with the boys. The boys are awesome. And um, where I was at EDC, uh, really passionate company with a strong history. So it was just more society, uh, everyday society stuff that sort of um, I needed to adapt to. And that's probably the biggest thing. Like I'm the foreigner in, in Japan and, um, I'm not at home, I'm a visitor and that sort of uh, mindset I've taken in around the culture, the food and the language.
0: And quickly on it, have you become accustomed to the food? Because I know one or two of my friends went there and struggled initially. Have you um, come to terms with what's been served to you on a plate every day?
1: Look, for the first year, I ate in the dorm, and um, I guess to fit in anywhere, you don't want to look different, do you? Yep. And you don't want to be different. Um, you're gaijin because you're foreign, which is the term for being foreign here. But uh, my family come over um, in school holidays for the first sort of eight months. So it's quite a bit of tight downtime by myself. And I actually ate at the dorm with the players. So I come off a farm back home, so I'm used to being told – from my late father, you eat everything on your plate and yeah. you eat that even if you don't like it. So that sort of always stuck with me in the back of my mind. So there's a lot of times where I was eating eating food that I didn't even know what it was. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of eyes watching me and um, I'm a good doer. I mean, I'm one of the players that's managed to maintain my weight, but everything's gone from north to south. <laughs> a lot of other players that get quite skinny, but... Um, yeah, I've, um, I've stayed strong and stayed the same weight, but it's just gone gone south. But um, I enjoy the food, mate. It's um, very healthy, and, I mean, you only need to Google the life, average life expectancy of uh, Japanese men and women, and you'll see that there's not a lot of fried food. You can find that if you want to look for it, but the Japanese diet is heavily va- um, based plant-based and meat, mm. you know, and um, unprocessed. Mm unlike most of the stuff I'm eating, so I'll take note of
0: that. <laughs> so so several months ago, it was announced, obviously, that you were the new head coach of the Quebec Steelers and that you'd be working alongside Wayne Smith while also coaching the likes of Adam Ashley Cooper and even Dan Carter as well. I'm just curious to know, and a lot of people in Ireland don't really have a clear idea as to what exactly Japanese club rugby is really like, so I'm wondering what, what sort of insights can you give uh, to us because we're seeing it every single month when there's transfers open in Europe or when players are looking to get away and we're seeing a hell of a lot of high-profile players uh, move to Japan at some stage during their, uh, their career, I should say.
1: Well, I guess first things first. All the rugby over here, so I've got two or three di- divisions, but um, all those divisions are company run. So, for example, I alluded, excuse me, I alluded to before that I was at any NEC which is um, a technology company. So they're based an hour north of um, Tokyo. Okay, and then now I've taken the head coach role down. Uh, about half an hour from Osaka living on a man-made island called Rocco Island um, and the company that I'm with is Cabalco Steelers, which you alluded to, which is a steel company and um, you know we've we've done a lot of work around it, but uh, Cabalco Steelers are the biggest producer of aluminum foils for cars in the world, so percent mm. So all the company rugby is uh, all the rugby is company based, so Ricoh, uh, Toshiba. Um, which are obviously technology companies. Um, Suntory, which is a massive uh, beverage company and supplement company here. Um, and then, yeah, you just got all different. Kintitsu, which was half an hour up the road, as a railway hotel company. So all the all the rugby is based around the companies and the companies had teams. And a lot of the companies have, um, like NSC had a women's volleyball team and um, Toyota's got a men's basketball team and, so they run a couple of professional teams, majority of companies, um, rugby and, and, as I alluded to, other sports.
0: Wow. And what sort of standard would the Japanese league be? If I know it's probably very tough to compare to put it next to a premiership or a Pro 14 unless you're playing against the actual teams, but how high is the level? Um, as I'm just curious, like when a – Adam Ashley-Cooper or Dan Carter flies over. Are they expecting a a backseat ride, or do they get there and they're like, "Jesus, this is this is quite a high standard. I need to I need to pull my socks up there and start training hard."
1: Yeah, well, it's um I guess you know until you play against people. We just come back from the Mauritius Tens where we finished third, um, and obviously it's a different format of the game. Mm-hmm. But um they had Montpellier, uh, Newcastle. Uh, Western Force, those teams there, so we were fortunate enough to finish third there, but the thing with Japanese rugby, and you would have seen with the semester, it's, it is very, very quick, mm. so um, it's it's high tempo rugby, um, those foreign players that come in, I know, well, the two players that you talked about, um, they're very good rugby players, obviously outstanding world class rugby players, but more importantly, they're, they're good men, so um we've got Andy Ellis here as well. Um who's obviously ex All Black and Crusader as well. But I think those guys come over I think for a couple of reasons. I think obviously it's um, a lifestyle choice but, um, in Europe and even New Zealand you play a lot lots of games of rugby if you're at all black and super level. Um, you know, you can knock off sort of twenty to thirty games and if you're in premiership, well, you know the numbers yeah. in around that. And over here, <clears throat> for example um, this season's a little bit unique, but most seasons you're sort of looking at the last two years when I was at NEC, sort of 13 games. Um, pre, it's really interesting. Like the, the pre-season's long, so we assembled in April and our first competition game is in September. Um, so it's unlike Super and unlike the Premiership. Um, but I'd, it'd be up in and around a lot quicker than Premise at Rugby um, and probably be between minor team Cup and hmm. Super Level.
0: And would you... I remember Eddie Jones, and I don't keep name dropping as if I'm his number one fan, but he was saying with the Japanese, they weren't physically able to compete against the top tier one side. So it was all about, as you were saying, it was all about quick ball, it was all about skill sets, it was all about fitness. So is that what you're focusing on with your club? Or have you brought some of the structures and attacking structures and even as i mentioned wayne smith i'm sure he's got a vast vast array of experience and ideas with them so did you have to adjust to japanese rugby or did you bring your own take on rugby and kind of force it upon the japanese uh, players
1: good question i think um any team that you're in you've got to look at the profile and what you're working with i guess we're quite quite fortunate we've got some very good japanese players um and previously at this, you know, Jim McKay was here for two years and um, he was able to win a Super Rugby title with Queensland and assist with um, Australia as well as a tech coach. And um, Kobe were very, very good underneath him. They played a very expansive attacking style. Previous to that, um, uh, Gary Gold was here uh, and so was Alistair. Um, Cortez that was um, South African coach as well so the boys are used to playing a wide expansive uh, rugby I guess the challenge with any, any coach is so they're at a good school level but it's just just continually work on that catch pass that spatial awareness and decision making and I guess what we've done is instead of putting people on the line and running them and we still do fitness testing and obviously Got a very good S and C. Um, Basil um, Curtis, who was with South Africa and the Bulls when they were very successful under Heinrich Meyer. Um, we've got we've had a lot of rugby-based conditioning in the preseason, so a lot of conditioning games of the ball, or decision making. A um, lot of breaking down of the skills and everything like that. And, you know, we want to play a wide, expensive style, but we're fortunate enough to have those quality coaches that have been here prior to us turning up, you know.
0: To summarise going into next year's World Cup, and that's going to be a massive event from a global perspective, but then also from a Japanese perspective, because they really put themselves on the map in the last World Cup out and with that, that famous victory over the South Africans. And what is... Well, like, What should we expect from uh, Japanese rugby heading into the World Cup? But then on top of that, what should fans who travel over to Japan expect when they visit Japan for the World Cup?
1: So a couple of questions here. So first one I'd say is there's a lot of quality foreign coaches that are coaching at the companies. So um, there's some very good development going on. There's some good players coming through from the Japanese university system. Um, And then when you go above that, you've got Jamie Joseph, who's obviously been over here as a player and actually was one of the players that was, back in the day, was able to play for the All Blacks in Japan. Um, He's basically overseeing Japanese rugby at the moment in charge of the national team and the Sunwolves. And then assisting him is... Tony Brown, um, who once again had massive experience over here as a player and was with Jamie at the Hollanders and then Scott Hansen's involved there as well, um, running their defence and he's actually on our Kobe staff as well with a wealth of experience with Canterbury back home and in Europe as well. So I guess I alluded to before, you've got um, quality people in, in the right places and just recently, I guess, example how they've run that Sunwolves programme, um, They've improved. The performances are a, a lot better from the previous couple of years. Um, they're developing a whole heap of players, a lot of youth coming through. Um, they ran a Japan A um, team this year that went out and played three of the New Zealand franchises A sides when the Sunross were touring New Zealand. So they've done some really good work around building depth in key positions. Um, they've got a number of guys foreign players that will be Japanese qualified come November or moving through to the World Cup. Um, so I think what you can expect from Japan is um, more of the same, if not, you know, uh, another level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, go on. So that, that's the rugby. That's where I see the rugby. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be here two seasons and. Seen some changes in that and around and see the development. And um, There's a lot of good stuff going on, particularly the national side and, and at the Sunwolves, which is filtering down to good people at the companies.
0: And then to follow on with the second part of that statement, which was the question, what, what should the fans be expecting when they visit Japan?
1: I think they'll be a bit like um, I was and many people are when they come here. They'll be... They'll enjoy the country. They'll enjoy the people. Um, they'll enjoy not having to look after, over their shoulder every five minutes on, um, to see if someone's <laughs> taken anything or um, anything like that. It's easy to get around. There's The transport system's outstanding. So I had to go for a meeting, referees meeting in Tokyo last Sunday and um, I caught a train from where I live, five minutes from where I live, into the main station, and which is a Shinkansen, which is a bullet chain. And, you know, you travel 250 to 300 k's an hour and it's just efficient. It's a very efficient society and everything that's done. Um, so I think people that are thinking about it or people that are coming and have a wonderful time and obviously there's a lot of strong history here as well as, as, as an island, but different history and different features and um, – I think will be awesome. I think the World Cup will be awesome.
0: Mm, no, I'm, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it as well. Both will see what happens on and off the pitch, and I suppose that um, pretty much wraps up the main questions. And we have to, unfortunately for yourself, move on to the quick fire round. Mm. And yeah, I encourage you to say whatever <laughs> you first think of.
1: And uh, that's good. you just ride the whole ride the whole thing, couldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> good. So I'll start off with.
0: First question, and that is what is the strangest thing you've seen on a rugby pitch?
1: Um, one of my mates got rucked at first 15 level and he pulled his shorts to the side and I saw his testicle hanging out. <laughs> oh, that's a pretty good one. I didn't realise my testicle, their, our testicles were blue, so there you go. That <laughs> was interesting. And another of my mate was watching and dry reaching, so yeah, that's the strangest thing I've seen.
0: If you were to give a TED Talk,
1: what would you talk about? Um if I was to give a TED talk, I would talk about the importance of relationships in society. Good answer.
0: Uh what is the worst advice you see or hear being given in your world?
1: Uh he's got potential.
0: <laughs> oh, um who is the best player you've
1: coached? Uh Jordan Tafau plays for the Crusaders and hopefully will be an all blacks team.
0: Which person do you admire most, and why?
1: Uh, My father passed away in September, so up till then it was my father, Um, and I I obviously still admire him. Uh, Why I admired my dad was because he gave everything so that we could have a lot. I guess Um, Mm. with what he what he did, how he did it, and um, how he was as a person. So that would be my answer to that.
0: And second last one, what is your favorite film?
1: Uh, favorite film is Shawshank Redemption. Oh, that was it was actually on last night. I watched it again. And who fame crawled four hundred yards on his hands and knees through pissing shit to freedom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: we'll take that as a story any day of the week. So, last question is: describe yourself in three words. Uh...
1: I've never been asked that question, actually. Um, I guess I like to think of myself uh, caring, um, respectful, and work ethic, maybe. Okay.
0: Maybe. I probably should have
1: said work ethic first. Probably rolled off the tongue a bit better, but yeah.
0: Okay. Well, that concludes the podcast, Dave. So. Thanks a, a lot for coming on. I'm glad we finally got the time zones and whatnot working. So um, it is sometimes tough to get these things sorted. But I thank you for coming on. Listen, I really enjoy getting to learn about the ins and outs of Japanese rugby, New Zealand rugby in the many different places you've been. And listen, I wish you all the best uh, with the season and challenges ahead and also off the field. I hope you have um, a great few weeks and a great year.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and I guess um, I've been fortunate enough to listen to a few of these podcasts, and I guess um, blessed enough to to know some of the people and work with them at St. Michael's, and um, I guess anyone that's out there listening to it, that's an old boy or involved in St. Michael's, it's um, you know just in, in conclusion, it's uh, been a it was a pretty massive part of. Um, me teaching back home and, and myself being where I am today I, I up the flaming sword I, I love the place it's uh, a lot of bloody good men and good people and um, yeah I just feel fortunate that I was uh, lucky enough to be there at the at the time that I was
0: yeah no hear hear to that and a lot of people listening to it that will be students and I think it is important to know that you did play your part obviously now it's it's uh, much more global and the media pays more attraction to it but you were at the early stages, as you even previously mentioned, with the likes of Gary Coakley, Greg McWilliam. So you definitely did play your part in what it is today. So no doubt, hats off to you.
1: Yeah, no, I look forward to having a beer, beer all three at the mirroring
0: <laughs> No, it's still going strong. So yeah, we should look forward to that. Okay, well, listen, Dave, thanks a bit. No worries. Take care.